During the winter months in cities across North America, thousands of crows gather into overnight roosts. Night after night, waves of these black birds fill the sky at dusk, streaming in from all directions. And you can't help but wonder why. My name is Craig Gibson, and I'm an avid bird photographer, writer, and conservationist with a passion for educating adults and children about the marvels and mysteries of God's winged creatures. Welcome to The Crow Patrol, a podcast exploring the amazing phenomenon of winter crow roosts and the lives of these incredibly smart, social, and family-centered birds. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Crow Patrol podcast. We're delighted today to extend a very warm welcome uh, to my friend, John Kreischer. Many of you may know that John has been a distinguished professor of biology at Wheaton College and is now of emeritus status, having recently retired after a long run there. John is a noted ornithologist and has had an endless number of leadership positions in a range of ornithological organizations, birding groups, and others, including the American Birding Association. John has uh, been a prolific author of many books, some of which he'll touch on, and uh, a deep interest in ecology, natural history, and evolution. And with that, John, we're happy and delighted to welcome you and invite you to share if you would like a few more tidbits, uh, a few more highlights on your background. Well, thanks, Craig. It's a real honor to be on the podcast with you. And uh, I'm an admirer of your work on Crow Patrol. Uh, crows are amazing animals. They really are. So we can talk about them later. I worked at Wheaton College, uh, taught there for 48 years. It was largely a busman's holiday because I really enjoyed teaching. I liked being in the classroom. I liked the students. It's an all undergraduate audience but a great many of them did research on birds and I got to teach the subjects I enjoyed. And in retirement, uh, nothing but good memories. <laughs> That's totally great. So John, first memories of becoming interested in birding and nature. Oh, that's an easy one. When I was uh, five years old, uh, actually when I was four, my parents moved to a suburban neighborhood in Glenside, Pennsylvania, near Philadelphia. And it was still a little bit uh, wild and, and there were birds. And my grandmother who lived with us gave me a book that has sold in the millions and has inspired many a birder at various levels, The Golden Nature Guide to Birds. Uh, and it was a simple little book with color pictures of birds and I could go out in the backyard and there they were, at least some of them. So that's what got me interested. I don't know quite how I got so hooked on it. I think I do, but that's probably a story longer than you have time for. Well, we can come back to that at another time. As you might be able to recall, your first notion of when birding might or started to become part of a vocational calling. Oh, that's uh, when I was in uh, junior high. Well, actually, uh, I suppose junior high school 
Actually, when I was 13 years old, um, that that I can remember wanting to go out and see more birds. And I, I measure that by the books I enticed my parents to buy me. And uh, that's about the time I got my first copy of Roger Torrey Peterson's famous book, A Field Guide to the Birds. And that's what, and when you saw that, you just knew there was a world out there that you could explore that would be absolutely wonderful. And so that was the book that made me into a birder. And uh, the birds and the book fed off each other. I'd see a bird, there it would be in the book. I could find it. Uh, then I'd see another bird, and there it would be in the book. And so it started to become a challenge to go out and find more of them. And I was once told by a person who was a very inspiring figure to me, a man named Herbert H. Mills, who served on the board of National Audubon Society and is responsible for founding the Wetlands Institute in Stone Harbor, New Jersey. Anyway, Herb, or Mr. Mills, as I called him, said to me, well, you know, it's great that you're seeing all these birds and great, you know how to identify them. I'm not really worried about that. He said, what I'm wondering is in 10 or 15 years, are these birds going to have the same effect on you? Uh, are you going to like doing this that much? I passed that test. <laughs> That's a great story. While we're on Roger Tory Peterson, I assume with the different national level organizations that you had a chance to be a part of, uh, I'm going to assume that you had a chance to meet and talk with him uh, uh, one or multiple times. Uh, more like multiple. And I was absolutely thrilled that my first book project was in the Peterson Field Guide series. And uh, my editor at the time, a wonderful man uh, now gone named Harry Foster at Houghton Mifflin, told me, he said, you know, you're going to have to be careful. Uh, the Field Guide series is based on ID. If you want to do a book on ecology, because my idea was to do a field guide to eastern forests with the idea of being ecology, interactions, plants, animals, the whole nine yards. Uh, he said, we're going to have to sell Roger on it. Well, we didn't. As soon as he found out about it, he said, this is the kind of book I've wanted in the series for a long time. This is a great idea. But that was all by letter. And I finally met him and he couldn't have been nicer. And so he lived up to all my expectations of what I thought he was. And, and he was indeed. So, yes, I had a chance to hear him speak off and I had a chance to talk with him. And so... I certainly didn't know him real well, but I knew him well enough. Well, for one of the legends in birding, what a treat to be able to have had those opportunities. John, in the world that we live in today, my deceased father was a college professor at Tufts University. In the world we live in today, it is still an extraordinary academic accomplishment and life accomplishment to become and to receive a Ph.D., couple of highlights on, on your receiving your PhD. What was your dissertation on and how has it served you since then? And they say always play to your strengths. And my strength was to be able to find and identify birds and know something about them. So I structured a PhD project that was based on looking at different aged fields and forests to see what birds occupied them, and then try to understand what the relationship was between the overall diversity of the birds, so that not only the number of species, but the population sizes, and how they related to the different environments. Because of the time in ecology, we were wondering if 
species diversity is a key component of habitat stability. And this obviously has profound conservation implications. So that's what occupied me. To put it in a more simple way, I did my PhD work based on going out bird watching every day. <laughs> Never a bad objective. How quickly did you become a full professor? And, and was it on track with what your initial expectations were? Or was it a bit more of a slog for you? It was actually accelerated. I got promoted to associate professor after three years at Wheaton, and my Wheaton job was directly out of graduate school. That's very unusual today to be able to go to a college and as a professor directly out of grad school, but it wasn't as unusual then. And I got an active research program going, and so I got an early promotion, and I was, uh, I think it was my sixth year at Wheaton, which is normal, when um, I received tenure. And then shortly after that, maybe two, three years later, I got promoted to full professor. It was fast. Wow, real impressive. As we move on, on to a couple of other topics, you probably are a bit more rare among your colleagues. You and I know each other primarily through the Nuttall Ornithological Club. We're both members and, and on the board. But among those I've had a chance to get to know, far fewer than might be expected have had a chance to be an extraordinary nat regional, local, regional, and national leadership positions. And you have a chance to meet and get to know a much wider circle of people. Uh, your influence is far greater. Uh, your circle of learning is far greater. But to have served as the president of the ABA, leadership at the Association of Field Ornithologists, Wilson Ornithological Society, Manomet, more locally, including Mass Audubon, not all. What's that been like for you to be able to exercise those leadership muscles within the broader context of your vocational calling in the world of ornithology? Well, they weren't all leadership positions. I, I need to correct you on one thing, Craig. I was never the president of the ABA, but I served for nine years on the board of the ABA. Okay. It's a little mm -hmm. bit different, but it's always a privilege to be able to do something like that. And what's really fun about it is the other uh, people you meet of like mind, so to speak, and of like dedication to the organizations. It was very nice to move from uh, one organization to another. And I have been present in the Wilson Ornithological Society, Association of Field Ornithologists, and not all ornithological club. And um, I'm a fellow in the American Ornithological Society. That gets you a lot of uh, folks that you know. And, and that has been very, very nice. Uh, bird people are generally uh, nice people. And uh, so I've, I've had a uh, quite a, a nice career with those various organizations to which you just referenced. Terrific. As you refined your interests, your academic interest, um, anything stand out for you about fine tuning around ecology, natural history and evolution? Anything, any thoughts come to mind about fine tuning around those topics? Uh, yes. Uh, when I first went to Wheaton as a professor, I taught ornithology, but I wasn't doing as much research in birds. I was researching uh, in other areas of ecology. But uh, what really changed me and focused me sharply on birds above anything else, uh, in fact, excluding anything else, was the first time I went to the tropics. Uh, I took a class of Wheaton College students to Belize 
in the winter of 78-79, that was the last century. And that made all the difference in the world. I'd always wanted to go to the tropics. And once I was there, it was like Dorothy walking out of that house into the technicolor world that would be Oz. And uh, so it was a game changer. A word that's used too often, but in this case, it applies. No, that's, that's very understandable. I had a conversation recently with Scott Weidensall about the way in which there is an inordinate amount of study around breeding bird ecology and only now a growing understanding with greater depth and breadth around about migratory patterns and then wintering ecology. So I'm going to guess that trip really opened your eyes to wintering ecology for birds, particularly with the students filled with so many questions. Oh, it did. When you said that, I I got amused because I can tell you exactly why there was such a concentration on nesting ecology. And that is because most of the people who did it were academics and they taught during the winter in semesters. And so they needed breeding season to do their research. (laughs) And, And so there was a pragmatic component to it. Plus, most of the studies were done on breeding birds of the north, even though most of the species of birds are equatorial in nature. uh, It just wasn't possible for ornithologists to easily get to field stations because there were none. And uh, so it took years to grow this network of um, connectivity between the tropics and the temperate zone in this hemisphere. and, And that's changed everything. And we know so, so much more about birds now as a result of it. Fascinating. John, looking back almost uh, five decades, what was your favorite course that you taught at Wheaton and why? I mostly liked them all, even the introductory course, which uh, people often loathe when they teach because it's often considered (laughs) burdensome, but uh, I liked it. But the course above all, of course, is ornithology. And when I retired, I said to my department, some of whom uh, were less receptive than others, that that we needed to maintain ornithology at Wheaton. We needed to replace me with an ornithologist, uh, ecologist. And the ecology actually precedes the ornithology. That's the primary definition of the position. But they said, no, no, you could get anybody. You get herpetologists, you get this, you can get that. I said, oh yeah, you're going to find a lot of frogs in the middle of the winter. And the reason I was so pleased with ornithology is because the birds teach the students. I don't have to do much. They get so fascinated by watching the birds. It's Professor Kreischer. Why did you see that one over there? What was it doing? And and you go on and on and on. So the birds are so dynamic, so active, so obvious, so out there that when I took the students on field trips, the birds sold themselves. And and, uh, so it it was a great course to teach. Fabulous. John, you have undoubtedly many fans that surfaced in a variety of ways after the recent, uh, your recent new book, Peterson Guide to Bird Behavior, surfaced. I would have to count myself among the upper level of fans that just loved the book. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about how this came to be and uh, uh, your overall uh, kind of thoughts and introduction to the book for those who may not have read it yet? Sure. The book is called The Peterson Reference Guide to Bird Behavior. And the Peterson being referred to as the person we talked about earlier, Roger Tory Peterson. Publisher is Houghton Mifflin, uh, now Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, but it's just been sold to another corporation. That's how it goes. In any case, 
Uh, the editor at Houghton Mifflin that uh, I knew, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, was a woman named Lisa White. And I talked to her at a bird convention. And I said, I've got this idea for a bird behavior book. And I think it could fit into your Peterson Reference Guide series, which is a diversity of books. Some of them focus. Well, you mentioned Scott Widensaw. He has a most wonderful book in that series on owls. And uh, so... Uh, Anyway, it was a series I wanted to be in because, you know, of, of Roger Tory Peterson, and, and, and it's a very respected series. And Lisa said they, someone was already under contract to do that very subject, bird behavior, but the contract was withering on the vine. And that person turned out to decide it wasn't uh, a good idea. And so I got the contract and I produced the book in about two years, two and a half. Two, two and a half. And is that pretty close to your initial expectations of how long it would take? It is. I was pretty confident that with all the years I had talking in the field to students about bird behavior, that my difficulty would be too much information and not enough. And that was my difficulty. When, when I turned in the final manuscript to Lisa, she wrote me back and said, eek, uh, it's too long. We've got to cut it. So yeah, that turned out to be pretty easy. And uh, I was supposed to have something like two, maybe 300 photographs in it or something like that. And I put plenty more in there on purpose. And uh, she said another eek and said, there's too many, John, you've got to take some out. So we compromised and it ended up having many more pictures than it was originally supposed to. It all worked out just fine. It's my favorite book of the ones I've written because it was such it's such an enjoyable book to write. I've done a textbook on tropical ecology, several other books on tropical ecology. They required a great deal of research and care putting them together. This book I wrote as though I was standing there out in the field, maybe looking at Florida scrub jays with some students around explaining what Florida scrub jays do. It was fun. Wow. Uh, have you spent time down uh, studying and observing uh, the Florida scrub jays? I've never published on them. I've observed them quite a bit, but uh, they're extremely well known as social species, of course. And uh, and I wanted to have a chapter devoted to social behavior. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we'll come back to that in just a second. What was the most exciting chapter for you in the book? Does one stand out above the rest? Yeah, the one I enjoyed the most because it was the biggest challenge in terms of how to structure it and how to get enough information in to do justice to the subject. It's the one on feeding behavior, because there is so much ecology that is part of feeding behavior. It's what the bird really does. It's, you know, how it gets its energy is something that it does on a daily basis. And the diversity of patterns in birds and the diversity of how birds affect ecosystems. It's all part and parcel of that. We have so many different kinds of fish eating birds. Know why? Because there's so many different kinds of fish and the birds then adapt to feeding on the same fish in different ways or in different fish on the same way. Uh, so it runs from herons and sea eagles to little things like orioles. Orioles feed on fish. I had one that did. Uh, they learned fast. I, I rehabbed an oriole, a uh, Baltimore oriole in graduate school, and it ate several of my tropical fish. 
that just <laughs> landed on the aquarium and stabbed him and ate him. So that was a good chapter to write. I really did enjoy it. John, would you say on taking that just a bit further, safe to say that that's the biggest time allocation for most birds in their in their kind of day-to-day activities? It's the one thing they can't do without. They have to have nutrition. But of course, as you know, Craig, it varies rather dramatically with the kind of bird you're talking about. Kinglet is so radically different from a herring gull, for instance. A kinglet can't spend its day just sitting on a branch. A herring gull can spend its day just sitting on a beach. It depends on if it got lucky and it got a good fish and it ate it and it's got a slower metabolism per unit body weight. So go a long time. But Everything about birds, their their structure, their beaks, the, the way they move uh, has ultimately to do with how they capture their energy. So feeding is the essence, yes. John, tell us um, one of the things that, that brought us together was chapter 11 and social behavior of birds is a dedicated chapter in the context of the overall book on bird behavior. But what can you tell us big picture, your observations and your learnings, uh, both before and after you completed the book on social behavior among, among birds? The first thing about social behavior among birds, which is hard for people to wrap their heads around in any meaningful way, is the social behavior includes different species being together in the same place. There is real social behavior, for instance, between Lapland longspurs and snow bunnies when they're feeding in a mixed flock. They intermingle because their interests are the same at that point. They don't know each other particularly well, but they cluster together because clustering together means more eyes to spot the damn Merlin that's about to come in and go after them, you know. So when you look at social behavior, birds live in a multi-species environment, and that's something we, you know, and by multi-species, you know, people have said to me, yeah, but I got two dogs, a cat and a goldfish. That's a multi-species environment. What about farmers? They have pigs and goats and cows and sheep. Well, it's not the same because the multi-species environment that birds live in, the multi-species have about equal intelligence. There's a span, of course, but it's nothing like humans living in a, you know, with barnyard animals or, or your pet dog. As much as you love your dog, it ain't going to drive the car for you. And so uh, birds have that going for them. And then the spectrum of social behavior birds in birds ranges from very casual, almost none at all. I use brown creeper as an example. On its average day, a brown creeper sees more different species of birds than it sees brown creepers. Even in nesting season, it only sees its mate, usually. But uh, other species that nest colonially, uh, they're not, uh, they nest colonially for various reasons, but surely in a colony of several thousand gannets, they don't know each other. They're not, you know, calling each other up and, you know, but as we know about crows, they do know each other up to a point, and it's a, it's a pretty significantly complex society. So social behavior in birds really is complicated depending on the species, crows, parrots, the corvids and the parrots, those are the ones that are the smartest birds. But social behavior in turkeys is rather elaborate too, and we never think of them as particularly smart, but we underrate them. <laughs> John, in the book, you make mention of crows and I assume, you know, corvids, corvid family members among the most social of birds. What, what, what do you think is the background on this grouping among the most social of birds? 
that's an intriguing question. And it's hard to know how these trajectories get started. It's kind of like saying, why are apes as smart as they are compared with other primates and even compared with other mammals? Why can't horses be as smart as chimpanzees, for instance? And they are not as smart as chimpanzees. We know that. But I think that crows probably are relatively recently evolved. The corvidae's uh, not recently evolved, but the modern crows and ravens are. And um, the corvids are widely distributed, to put it mildly. And so um, it just worked out for them to get smart. It worked out for us to get smart, but it's hard to retrace what made us that smart. Why can we articulate vowels and, and, and develop language and gorillas can't? We have some ideas about why that is, but that's just the way it goes. Evolution is a bush and those bushes have different branches and those branches, uh, unlike the flowers on trees, the branches culminate in different flowers, uh, quite different. And so the mammalian bush is a complex one consisting mostly of rodents and bats, but uh, we've got primates and us. The bird bush is very complex, particularly the passerines. But with the Corvidae, you have clearly, I think, uh, the most demonstrably intelligent birds. Amen to that. John, there was a passage in the book that referenced social behavior among, quote unquote, these immense winter roosts. What do you think is going on? They, they meet in these staging areas. They converge into the final roost location up in Lawrence, 10, 12,000. There's, there's this tremendous series of social interactions, vocalizations, jostling around, moving again, moving again. It all goes quiet and it remains that way for the most part and less disturbed until about 90 minutes before sunrise. From a social behavior point of view, what's going on with these different different aspects as they come in from foraging ground trips during the daytime? Well, I should be asking you. You've spent a great many more hours watching them than I have, but I was privileged to go to the crow roost that I know you uh, uh, see all the time up in Lawrence, Massachusetts. But I kind of think it's a little bit like a busy airport. Uh, you go into the terminal building and people are milling around and looking at their watches and waiting for their flights to be called. And they're not milling around quite randomly because you can see there's a group of students all wearing the same uniform going to play hockey somewhere. And there's a family uh, together. And, and then, then the flights occur and off they go. And I've watched staging of crows in a lot of different areas. There was a conference I went to in California once, and they'd staged on the parking lot every night. They stood on the cars, they walked around, there they were doing exactly what you described, and then off they went, kind of uh, in synchrony to the, to the roost. Ecologists like to try to understand these things. There must be some kind of complex communication among them, and it must be structured such that groups of them do really know each other and probably stay together. The fact that we can't recognize them as individuals is because of our inadequacies and in being able to pick out the subtleties of what is meaningful to them in, in terms of signals. Just talk to Jane Goodall. Uh, she's told this story many times about how she had to be very patient 
to be able to learn the distinctions among the chimpanzees that you got to know very, very well. You have to be patient and you can't be patient with the crows because they don't give you a chance to do that. They just come and you look at the groups and then pretty soon off they go. Why they even roost in those kinds of astonishing large roosts, it seems mysterious to me, except that perhaps it's one of the ways that stimulates their crow brains and their crow memories. Uh, they can talk to one another in crow language. I often call them the crow people when I see them. You know, we have a number of different hypotheses. Okay, they get together because it protects them against predators. Well, that's some damn great horned owl that's going to go in there and eat 5,000 crows or 100,000 crows. Uh, I, I think that is an inadequate explanation, but there, there's some accuracy likely to it. And they use each other's information sources uh, as to where to forage, because foraging is very important to crows and they're good generalist foragers. But my God, are they smart. I mean, when they can recognize human faces, and they do, we know that. Mars Loft's work showed that. Kevin McGowan talks about it up in Cornell. So they're just like, I suppose, humans are off the intelligence charts in mammals in general. I would put corvids in that category, including uh, such uh, things that we see every day as blue jays. John, would it be your guess that the first year birds, along with the first, second and third year helper birds, would it be your guess that they that they likely migrate together to the to the same location each year when they do go? Like what would happen with families of geese or cranes or something like that? I don't know, but I don't think that's unlikely. I've got a group of five blue jays here at Linden Ponds where I live, and I see them together a lot. And I wonder if it isn't a family group from the previous year. Uh, and our young ravens have dispersed. I just see the pair of them now, uh, but there were five of them at one point. And, and I don't know, but they of course don't get into big groups like crows do. Uh, and uh, I would think that they have to go to crow school, and uh, that's one of the reasons why the the young crows hang around with the older ones until either either forced out or, or on their own, they decide to leave. John, you mention in your book the ability to remember and recognize one another, and you touched on that a minute ago. Do you think that would be more from vocalizations or from some type of visual cues or some kind of an unknown mix of the both? Well, I certainly think it's a mix of the both. When I first was an ornithology student in college, not teaching it, but learning it, uh, my professor said, birds are like us. They're audio-visually oriented. They have a perhaps a sense of smell, but and we do too, but he used the analogy that when you go into a room and it's a new room for you and there are people in it, you use your eyes and your ears to inform yourself about the people. If you have a dog with you, it's going to use its nose more than it does its eyes. And so I think that birds are able to discern distinctions among individuals within a flock far more than we could if we're just watching them. But, I, you know, you look at a thing like a flock of Canada geese on a golf course. I don't think they all know each other that well. There may be groups of them that know each other to a degree, but 
I don't know that it's ever been studied to see if you'd have to color band them or something to see if various of them tended to associate together, even when in a much larger flock. And that's what I mean. Bird social behavior is on a real spectrum. Uh, a lot of birds, you know, the old expression, birds of the feather flock together uh, is all too true with a great many species, but that's largely for information purposes because they follow each other to food sources and of course for protection. Got it. John, I, it, it makes me think of another question. In this roost up in Lawrence and in many other crow roosts around the country, northern U.S., southern Canada, in many cases, the roosts have, and maybe the more southern roosts, have, have a mix of American crows and fish crows, and probably more fish crows in the U.S., Two different species, very similar, lots of similarities. What's your sense of, of how they might all get along and or identify differences and similarities? Any, any just thoughts on that with two different species? Well, they clearly recognize each other's different species because I don't think there's any hybridization among them. And there are very large roosts of birds that consist of multiple species, ranging from gulls to, of course, blackbirds, where you can have a roost of brackles and red-winged blackbirds and brown-headed cowbirds all mixing together. They clearly know the difference in each other. And uh, they're probably there because they have commonalities in, the, in what they eat and, and they mutually bunch together for protection. Those are the two standard things. And so I think that, you know, fish crows are newcomers to Massachusetts, where I live, and uh, they're relative newcomers. And so joining crow roosts, uh, as long as the crows don't act aggressively toward them, which they don't seem to do, it doesn't mean the crows, the American crows don't recognize them as different. And it doesn't mean they don't recognize the American crows as being distinct. But they have a common interest in that, and that's to roost together. It doesn't surprise me too much. Got it. Just one more question on that. Would it be your guess, and there's really no definitive answer or, or hypothesis, would it be your guess that within the roost, they would be in separate groupings? Yes. I, I'd love to know that for sure. But yes, I, I can't believe it's random. <laughs> They're too smart for that. John, I'm going to throw something at you right out of your book, and you make a comment about what birds might think of their fellow flock mates. So in a crow roost like the one up in Lawrence, how do you think the crows might regard their fellow flock mates? Not why are they there for the reasons that you stated, but how do you think they might regard their fellow flock mates? Just happy to have their company? Any other thoughts? You know, when you Put yourself into the mind of the bird, which is impossible to do. That's that's one of the curious things about birds that I talk about in the book. We have to understand when we talk about what would happen if we could find a, an extraterrestrial intelligence. Well, we've got terrestrial extra intelligences right here. Birds think differently from us, but they think in complex ways. And uh, so I think when the birds are in the roost, together, they're assessing a lot of things. Uh, a crow looks at other crows. Is that a dominant crow? Am I more dominant than that crow? Do I want to mess with that crow? But of course, with birds, uh, when they roost, they're usually not in, in reproductive mode. 
birds have an annual cycle. So that has to be factored into their um, social behavior as well. They're in different moods at different times of the uh, annual cycle. Well, as Wayne Peterson says, there, there may well be a probability that, that this is a bit of a dating bar and it, it could be some precursor activity before returning back to uh, active uh, breeding. But we'll leave that yeah, for another time. I think that's time. a very good suggestion. I would agree with Wayne on that. It's, it's a way of assessing your, uh, your colleagues among the uh, population. Yeah, yeah. John, this has been great. Final thoughts that uh, run through your mind as we finish up here. Final thoughts on on crows and or birds and or bird social behavior. Well, I think that there has been a um, an outpouring of bird behavior books lately. And uh, the thing I'd like to see, and I, I think I'm beginning to see it, is that bird watchers are now understanding that birds have this brain and have these memories and can make decisions and can, you know, one of the things I say in my book is when you're looking at the birds, they're looking at you. They see you very, very well uh, because their sense organs and reaction times are much quicker than what we're capable of. Another factor that you've got to keep in mind. So I'm pleased to see how many uh, birders now uh, mention bird behavior, even on their eBird notes. And I, I would like to see eBird become more involved with that sort of thing. I do it myself, but I get a little tired sometimes of seeing uh, birds just listed as just a list and the number. I like it when, uh, at least for a few of them, uh, the uh, person putting in the note says, uh, the bird was doing this or doing that. I found that a bit unusual. Uh, and so I hope that people spend more time reading about bird behavior and then going out and observing it. One of the things we authors of bird books know really well is that for a lot of birders, and I'm sorry, birders don't get too ticked off at me. It begins and it ends with putting an ID on the bird. Oh, that's a bullox oriole. Yeah, that's right. It's a bullox. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, next bird. But for many of them now, it's going beyond that to really looking at what some of these birds are doing. And I make the point in the book that if you're even in a warbler wave where you're looking at trees and you see different species of warblers, maybe you see one doing something pretty cool. Just watch it. Forgo seeing a couple of the others and just watch it. See, see what it's doing. Uh, so we'll see if that happens. But um, it was a pleasure to write the book. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I did. And so I hope that folks enjoy it and learn from it. John, this has been absolutely wonderful. We can't begin to thank you for all of what you shared, both about your background, uh, about the book, about social behavior, and of course, your insights on crows and crow roosts. Happy to hear you make mention of eBird entries every time I make a visit. I always have uh, some notes in my eBird uh, entry about what I observe, the trends and patterns, behavior, all of that. There's more at wintercrowroost.com, the blog about the winter crow roost up in Lawrence. John, we thank you. Keep up all of your great work, and we look forward to hearing about your next book when the time comes. Thanks, uh, Craig. It was an honor to be here today. Thanks, everyone. Join us again for the Crow Patrol podcast. That's all for this episode of the Crow Patrol. Subscribe to the Crow Patrol in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or your own favorite podcast app so you don't miss our next episode. You can find recent postings, photos, and videos of winter crow roosts, read the latest articles and research, and contact us at wintercrowroost.com. I'm Craig Gibson. Thanks for listening.